no one wants to die anytime soon from anything prematurely, but certainly from a heart attack or a stroke. A lot of our friends and people we know, and they're dropping from these unfortunate situations. Today, my conversation is with Dr. Daniel Chung, who earned his doctorate degree in naturopathic medicine from National University and has been practicing as a licensed naturopathic physician in Portland, Oregon for over 23 years. His practice focuses on advanced risk assessment, prevention, and drug-free treatment strategies for cardiovascular disease. He's done specialized training in cardiometabolic medicine with Dr. Mark Houston at the Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Our conversation with Dan was great. We highlighted a study that just came out this month, and the date of this recording is August of 2023, from the American Health Association, really giving good guidelines as to what is the best dietary approach to lower your risk of cardiovascular disease. Then we went on and tried to make the suggestions not only holistic, but realistic, right? How can every person practice a plant-based diet? What is a plant-based diet? And is there anything negative of practicing a plant-based diet? So my conversation with Dr. Daniel Chung on lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease through dietary approaches. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal, my passion to help you improve and optimize your prostate health and how to live better with age. You know, we are in Heart Health Month, right? And we're here, a whole series on just heart health. Why? Because that's a very important part of living better with age. Every 30 seconds, somebody around the world is dropping dead from a heart attack. And more often than not, they're men. So here we are with yet another expert. Dr. Daniel Chung, naturopathic doctor, colleague, who, if I'm anything good in urology, this is the man in cardiology from a naturopathic perspective. Dan, thanks so much for being on. Hi, Gio. Th thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, for sure. It's my pleasure. So, Dan, before we started recording, we were talking about the nonsense and the craziness of you know, these diet wars. No, my diet. No, no carnivore. Ketogenic. No plant-based. No... And even scenarios that we've had, you had an online scenario. And one of the things that we, you know, we, for the longest, we've respected each other so, so much and, you know, including even opinions. Here, here's where, at the end of the day, you and I, I believe, we're trying to get it right. We're not just trying to be right, right? I don't care to be right. I want to get it right. I want to do the right things for my patients. I want to do the right things for myself because, you know, I don't want to have a heart attack. <laughs> you know, when we talk about diet, right, it's tricky. What study can you really hang your hat on and say, yeah, this is the study, right? When even in conventional studies, even in pharmaceutical studies, oftentimes they're not replicated. There's always holes in studies, right? In most nutritional studies, not at all, they're observational, frequent questionnaires that they get sent probably every two years, trying to recall everything you ate or the subjects have eaten. I think there's a lot of emotions as it relates to food and why we eat has very little to do with just hunger as many other reasons, you know, many other components to it. Still, I want to get it right. Lastly, I was just at another podcast. I was like, look, I don't demonize food, right? 
I, I think I did when I first started, but I don't demonize food. So if you like soy, let's figure out how to eat soy and not this anti-soy rhetoric that increases estrogen in men and all that BS, right? If you, so, and that's what I do with patients, Dan. With patients, my job is not to say you need to be on paleo diet. No, what is it that you want to, oh, you want to be plant-based? Great, great. Let's figure out how to do a plant-based really healthy and where you particularly, some one of my concerns that we're going to talk about that is get, not getting enough protein and particularly not getting enough amino acids, which then leads to sarcopenia. And I, you know, I'm a big muscle guy. I think muscle is important as we age, right? And so forth. So I've said a lot of things. Let's start with <laughs> your approach with how you teach patients and why you teach patients from a cardiovascular perspective to reduce the risk of a heart attack or a stroke, blood vessel situation, what do you tell your patients and what's your guidance? Take it away. Yeah, thank you. And it's almost like you could talk about this all day. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, you're catching me kind of at an interesting time in my career. I've been doing this a long time and absolutely my approach, my perspectives, my thinking around all of this has changed drastically, especially in my sort of nuance that I go about using and communicating with patients. I do a lot of social media stuff too. And so that I would say the answer that I have there is kind of almost like a compilation of who the person is in front of me. To what degree is their health compromised? You know, what pathological box they fit in, so to speak, to at least create, help create a starting point, right? But I'm also, I think similarly to you, inclined to absolutely remember that I'm working with a human being who has different background, different perspectives, different built up, you know, defense systems in and around their diet. And it's a wide range, as I'm sure you know, of, of perspectives there in terms of some people are just like, tell me what to eat. I don't care what it is. I'll do it. Best thing you could possibly tell me to eat or whatever. And other people are like the opposite. Like, what are you going to tell me to eat? You know, arms crossed, whatever. And so I just, I try to get as much of a read as I can on that. But at the same time, I've looked at a lot of research in the realm of cardiovascular disease as much as I can. I know that nothing is perfect, but I also feel that if we look at the classic preponderance of evidence, that we do see patterns. Like you, you don't see like the vegan diet is the best diet for cardiovascular disease says this meta-analysis, like you're not going to see that, but you're going to see patterns that we have built up from looking at these questions. What is the healthiest diet for your heart that have been built up over the many years via a wide variety of different angles of looking at that question with research? We come up with patterns that create to me sort of like a default, most likely beneficial general approach. And then to, to me, how I further individualize that with each person is where I draw upon my communication with that person, who they are, everything that I can know about them. And then, but I would also still today fully acknowledge that we still don't know everything. And there are still potentially, we still are potentially going to learn things that we thought we knew about diet and its impact on cardiovascular disease 
ways that thus far we haven't. And so in my opinion, ever taking the approach of I know best, this is the answer, I think is totally inappropriate, totally non-scientific. And so that's kind of like always in my head as well. But the bottom line, as I was kind of mentioning to you earlier when we were talking to me, is the person in front of me from every angle that I can think about, which that's kind of what I draw on to create my initial recommendation. But then the most important thing, and I always tell my patients this, the most important test to me is the second test. Because if we do a baseline evaluation and we see what we see, whether it's imaging, labs, etc., and we have a feel for the circumstances that person's in. And then we default to the, at least from a dietary perspective, to the diet that's most matching them, but also most sticking with these patterns that I was mentioning that the most research has shown. And we apply it to their life as much as possible. And they're not a robot that I can just program and they just do the same thing every day. Mm. Then we follow up and look, how is that affecting you? It's not rocket science, you know, but it's, and that's really that that second test, so to speak, is or tests is what I then use to help further refine things, perhaps go in a different direction, perhaps you know, oftentimes on average, I'm going to get more buy-in mentally from the patient on that regard, and even more enthusiasm about maybe even going a little bit further if they're kind of like hesitant to, to make as much changes as perhaps I wanted them to, if they're already seeing changes just from what they're doing. So that's kind of how I think about things. That was a long answer, but that's how it is <laughs> these right. days. So what cardiovascular, you know, so, you know, I'm your patient. I'm a 51-year-old with serious concern. My dad, in this scenario, he died from a heart attack at 62. My mother had a bypass after, you know, menopause. Like, I have a serious family history. And, you know, I'm Cuban. I love Cuban food. That includes pork, right? This is the scenario. Yeah. Part of that is true, actually. Part of that (laughs) happens to be true. What dietary, what's the best diet? And go ahead and... I always tell people, reference whatever you want to reference. I care about studies. I also care about your experience, you know, what you've seen. So what would you recommend for me? Just purely dietarily. We, you know, I, we don't exercise in things, but what would you recommend dietarily? So, so let's say in this scenario that I did baseline evaluation of you as well. Because I usually don't make recommendations to people until I at least look at some objective information about them. And let's say that you had some concerning risk factors, right? Maybe your blood pressure is a tiny bit high, your LDL is higher than your LDL particle count or ApoB, which is what I advocate for, are higher than I'm comfortable with. Right. Got a little bit of inflammation. And you're 51, we did a calcium score and it's 75. So, you know, nothing's like freaking me out. So a calcium score of 75, in my knowledge, to my knowledge, is not high at all. It's not something to kind of freak out. Right. So this will be a good part of that discussion. But what I'll say for now is it's not that high relatively. Yeah. Sidebar, at least my view on it, you know, we always have to remember that a calcium score is identifying plaque that is in an advanced stage. Yeah. So it can't get there without passing through, you know, earlier stages. And there's a decent chance that there's some additional plaque elsewhere that's soft and not visible on that 
exam. And if you were to then look, use that test to say, what's my 10-year risk for an event? At 51, it might be pretty low, but it doesn't really help me identify, well, are you going to get a heart attack when 71? Like that's where we're still, I'm still, I need to know more than that because that, so any, so long story short with calcium scores with me, any, anything above a zero, I'm interested in. The older the person is, and then the lower their score is, the more comforting that is. Because again, the older you are, if you have very little to no advanced plaque despite being at an advanced age, then I become more relaxed about it. But anybody at the age of 51 that has any, I'm like, even if it's not that high of a 10-year risk, I still don't want you continuing in that direction. So we're going to, I'm going to advise you based on that. So let's just say that's the picture of the person and I'm determining, you know, okay, what's the best route to to go here? I mean, as I was alluding to initially, I I don't ever advocate for a named diet. So I'm not going to tell you, you need to eat a paleo diet or a carnivore diet or a vegan diet, you know, to me, especially vegan, vegan, that term is not really, in my opinion, having to do at all with health of your, of the person. It's a philosophical yeah. approach to eating. Good point, because I've seen a lot of vegans who are very unhealthy. So that's absolutely, very good, yeah. absolutely. They, I mean, they, I, they become starchitarians. Yeah, I still believe that if you want to design the least healthy diet possible, it's going to be vegan and full of crappy food, you know. So, so that's part of my point. And I would also acknowledge, you know, I'm a, I've studied a lot and trained a lot with Dr. Essel, who absolutely advocates for a vegan diet, even though he doesn't call it that. It is technically 100% plant-based, so whatever you want to call it. And, the, you know, the way he speaks about it, that is the best option. That's his that's how he would view it based on his experience. And he's and up there in years and he looks pretty good from what he's I've doing seen. pretty well. You can't argue with that end of one. <laughs> and <laughs> actually his wife is doing even better than he is. So And his so, son is and so it's N of three, because his son who's the fire the firefighter diet kind of guy is which is pretty much He's same, a beast. He's yeah. he has he's a world record holder in the two hundred meter backstroke <laughs> at fifty five. So he's a beast. But right. point being, clearly that's one potential option that may do well for any one individual person, but I'm can't help myself anymore. I'm much, I'm never going to say, so that's the best diet because as an example, whatever, you know, let's put aside for a second for anybody who knows that Dr. Esselstyn and the studies that he's done, and there is some criticism about them. They're not the perfect studies. You know, they're not random. They're not randomized. There's a variety of different things, but you know, it's hard to argue with the efficacy of what he's doing. But at the same time, I would also technically be able to argue that they never did a follow-up study where they did his exact diet with salmon added three times a week to see did it actually make it worse. So I can't sit here and tell somebody they can't eat salmon three times a week in addition to that diet because I don't know that until I, if they choose that they want to do that, I when I'm recommending a diet to somebody, it's going to be based partially on how severe their situation is. And the more severe it is, the closer to the more aggressive end of this plant dominant diet, I'm going to go. But at the same time, I'm never going to advocate. The only option is for you to eat 100% plant-based because I don't have evidence to support that statement. I could end up getting evidence from that person if they eat their version of what I'm telling them and they're not getting better, then I might say, well, there's some evidence now that perhaps we should be a little more aggressive. Let's try that. Three months later, oh my gosh, everything looks better now. Perhaps you should keep doing that. That's kind of how I 
approach things. So what's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for this individual? Another good question. I'm, you know, my first thing is always going to be whole foods as much as possible. You're not going to have eggs eggs in the morning, it sounds like. No. (laughs) Now, again, there's going to be countless people that argue that, well, the studies show that eggs aren't problematic and blah, blah, blah. And that's a whole other topic that we can discuss. But if, again, just the mindset is simple. I'm going to default to what is most likely to help them. And I'm never going to say eggs will for sure harm you. I'm going to say, let's try taking out the eggs you've been eating every day that led potentially helped lead you to where you are right now and make a change and see how you respond to that. So in doing so, I might instead recommend oatmeal with some walnuts and some blueberries. I might recommend a well-designed green smoothie. Dr. Esselstyn is not a smoothie fan. I don't think that there's any evidence to to suggest that's a harmful thing to do, assuming it's not like a, you know, mostly sugary, crappy smoothie. And then, you know, the rest of the day is going to be... Let's stay there on on breakfast for a second there, Dan. Oatmeal. What are we looking for? Irish cut, this, that, organic, you know, they they have all kinds of junk in them too, if you're not careful. Get more specific. I think Uh, it's important. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Number one, the first thing I'm going to say is organic these days, because oatmeal Mm -hmm. is a common source conventional oatmeal is a common source potentially of glyphosate contamination, which I'm very concerned about. I mean, you could argue that if you really want to avoid glyphosate, you have to move out of the United States of America. Another topic. In general, though, organic's going to have less non-GMO. Even the non-GMO GMO label, as I understand it, is not going to do anything to guarantee a reduction in glyphosate exposure, but organic may. So I'm definitely going to recommend organic. And then in the realm of like rolled oats versus steel cut, et cetera, I'm going to tend to default to what do you want to, what are you going to enjoy? That's not you know, the quick cook, lower fiber with brown sugar already added to the package oatmeal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if we're, as long as we're staying, you know, with the whole vo- version of it, I'm not going to be typically super picky about the version. The only version that you can eat is this brand that's this much fiber, you know, especially if I'm talking to somebody who's making a drastic change. If they don't enjoy it, it's not going to last anyways, you know, so I'm always trying to, you know, help them do something that's realistic and then they're not going to just be like, this sucks every time they eat breakfast. Should I soak it overnight? So, you know, one of the influencers that I know you love and I'm being sarcastic is talking about how oatmeal <laughs> has phytic acid and, uh, you know, yeah. it, it you know eliminates the absorption. So, so oatmeal and oats are horrible to eat. Meanwhile, by the way, I, I have no, no fight in this game. Uh, you know, I, I'm like, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, when I look at the research, it's pretty clear that way more benefits from eating oats and oatmeal than and downside. So um, yes. what what would you say about this phytate scenario, phytic acid in oats and how yeah. you know, those type of arguments that are, I'm not so, sure they're so accurate. On average, at least with those types of arguments, I see a common underlying theme, which is find a component of the food, find a study, usually in animals, not humans, that takes that component and exposes the animal to a high amount of it and then or cells in a petri dish and identifies a negative effect from that and then says therefore you should not consume this food while completely looking past all the real world outcome data from studies where they had the person eat the food and not the super high amount of the single ingredient of the food. And so oatmeal is a perfect example. Phytates are a perfect example. I I don't know that I've ever, I've looked, 
And I don't know that I've ever seen a study where they used whole oatmeal and had anything but other than a positive effect. So, and I guarantee that they did not soak it overnight in every single one of those studies. Could you argue that perhaps soaking it overnight might reduce the phytates and might in some people help them absorb another milligram of zinc possibly, but I'm not worried about that level of detail. Especially, again, my whole thing is if I'm already telling the person you can't eat what you've been eating for the, your whole life, I want you to eat this instead. And then I'm also going to say, and every night you have to remember to take out a certain amount of oatmeal, warm the water up to a certain level, soak it in the oatmeal and leave, you know all of these extra steps. I'm going to lose half the people I'm trying to get them to just eat the oatmeal. So again, I'm, if, however, they start eating oatmeal and two months later they're like, I feel sick from what you're telling me to do. I'm also not stubborn enough to just be like, well, it can't be the diet that I put you on because everybody's an individual. So I will then start exploring what are the things that you're doing that might be bothering you in whatever way you're describing to me. Mm -hmm. And if I ever came up with the possibility that maybe it's the phytates, then maybe I might have them soak it. But other than that, I'm not usually going to focus too much on that. If you want, I, I like the oatmeal conversation because one of the few things that I posted on YouTube channel that's not my podcast. I spoke about oatmeal and consumption and prostate and things like that. And, yeah. And, you know, took off. So people care about this, this discussion. Yeah. You said it doesn't matter. You know, steel cut, roll loads, doesn't matter. All right. I want the best oatmeal. I want the absolute best. I, it's more about getting it right. It's more about eating the right type of food. What would okay. you say? So in that case, then I would absolutely then advocate for the highest amount of fiber per serving that you can get from it, which would be the steel cut mm -hmm. variety as far as I know. Again, ideally organic. Some people have gluten organic, intolerance. Organic steel cut. And some people have gluten intolerance. And there is technically, you can find organic steel cut gluten-free oats if you look. And if that seems necessary, then I might say that as well. And, and you know, to me, it's also a vehicle for blueberries. So I'm typically going to recommend some blueberries in there if possible. By any means necessary, right? In a smoothie, in your oatmeal, in yeah. your pancake, whatever. Yeah, if I can pull it off, for sure. For lunch, what am I having for lunch? Um, oh my gosh, I mean, there's a, thousand, there's a thousand options. And that's also the point is like people hear more plant-based or more vegetables or whatever, and they sort of picture in their head, all I get to eat all, every day for lunch is salad from now on for the rest yeah. of my life. I'm just eating broccoli all day. Yeah, which obviously is not true. So so again, a lot of times I'll talk to the person again about what their preferences are initially and try to help them replicate these things as much as possible. I've gone away from a lot of like recipe books and like follow these, you know, detailed recipes because nobody does that. In reality, everybody needs to, if they're making their food themselves at all, they have to, it has to be quick, easy, blah, blah, blah. So the thing I most frequently recommend is leftovers from dinner the mm. night before. Mm -hmm. So, and then if they're eating out and they got to find someplace quick, I'm usually recommending Thai restaurants that you can get brown rice at, Mexican restaurants where you, that, you know, don't necessarily add oil and lard to their refried beans. And, you know, Asian in general. And then if they're eating at a steakhouse for their, their business meeting, I'm recommending, you know, baked potato without the sour cream and butter, maybe some salsa on it or something like that. Salad Yeah, I would side. say don't go to the steak restaurant if you're getting a baked potato is what I would say. Hey, that's just, you know, that's just awkward. I even tell people, look, you go to a steakhouse, don't even order fish. Either order the steak or just don't go. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm you know, half joking because obviously that's where the event is. What are you going to do? Not go to the event, right? right? So. Yeah. And, the, you know, and then, you know, that's a good point also is that 
then especially a subset of the people I talk to who are just locked in and they're like, I can never veer from the diet that you tell me ever or I'm going to die because or they come to me having already learned from somebody who speaks to them that way. My perspective is always like a single meal is all but impossible to to have lasting harm on you. It might have a short term harm. So I always tell them, you know, you do the best you can do in the circumstances that you're being faced with and try if it's not the best that's possible don't do it very often you know and i also this is another thing i tell people if they're in a situation like that and they're just like you know what screw it i'm gonna eat the steak i'm like cool eat a salad on the side there's this or broccoli whatever it is and there are actually legitimate studies that i'm sure you're aware of some of them where they've taken a food or they take a person they have them fasting they check something maybe endothelial function which for anybody that maybe doesn't know is like the inside lining of your arteries how it's functioning how healthy is it inflamed etc and they'll test that baseline of the person fasting i'm just thinking of a specific study right now uh, they give them a bowl of cream they check it again endothelial function declines that's bad and stays that way for three to four hours until it wears off. They leave the person, have them come back a few days later, same test, fasting, what's your baseline? Here's a bowl of cream, but we're gonna put blueberries in it. We're gonna check the same test. And the, the negative impact on the endothelial function is substantially less than it was with the cream by itself, even though it's the exact same cream, exact same amount. So it doesn't fully nullify it, but it seriously reduces the negative effects. So I'm like, I tell the person, don't take this as license to just eat whatever you want as long as you put blueberries on it. But but if and when you're in that situation, you got options, you know, you don't have to feel like I can't even do this, you know, because I can never so veer. Yeah. So that's kind of how I approach that topic. And anything for dinner, and when I say dinner, of course, I'm focused on not only nutrients, but I'm focused on what will help me sleep better, right? Mm -hmm. A couple of studies just came out. So let me tell you what I... When I think of sleep and food, right, and dinner, right? Number one is don't eat too much and eat as early, you know, two to three hours before bedtime. That's kind of the number one rule. Again, I'm really focused not only on nourishment, I'm focused on how do you get the best sleep possible. The other thing is, as of late, I've recommended some protein. So I used to recommend, again, when I say protein, I mean any kind of protein, whether it's plant-based or animal source. I used to recommend less protein because it's a, I, I, figure, I think protein is more like a stimulant. That's a strong word. It gives you energy and you want to have less energy. And carbs, actually, I used to recommend from a circadian perspective, more carbs at night. Just But a few studies because of serotonin and certain amino acids that are required for sleep, recommend no, a little protein. So maybe if it's two to three hours before, you could have protein from whatever source. Then, and particularly in patients that I'm trying to, I think you'll find this interesting, that I'm trying to raise their testosterone levels. And not only testosterone, I want to free up their testosterone. I have like an hour before, I haven't eaten like an apple. Hmm. The reason for that is because of uh, moderate insulin production. So, you know, if you eat carbs and it's too much insulin, it's going to interfere with sleep. Something like an apple is like a moderate amount of in insulin, not too crazy. And actually insulin reduces the production of SHBG, which, in which frees up more testosterone. Okay. So that's kind of depending on what I'm trying to do. I, that's kind of my workaround. Huh. Again, at the end of the day... When I look at dinner, I was like, what will affect sleep is more, I don't, is, I care less about the nourishment in that particular meal as much as I care with what will enhance sleep and what will interfere with good quality sleep. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you recommend? I, I, yeah, I think all of those are great thoughts. I'm also an advocate of stopping, at, you know, I usually say three plus hours before 
before laying down in terms of any food for, from the circadian rhythm melatonin production side of the equation. We can kind of leave aside other circadian rhythm related things, light exposure, etc. That's all also important. Physical activity, blah, blah, blah. Diet-wise, specifically, when I'm thinking about diet and sleep, I often, and somebody's already telling me perhaps that they don't have the best sleep at, at night, and we've ruled out, you know, sleep apnea, whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> I think a lot about what you would call like maintenance insomnia, where perhaps they fall asleep relatively easily, but they wake mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night, they're a little bit wired, they can't fall back asleep, they're up for an hour, and then they maybe sleep a little. And that it's kind of like this, it's a very common pattern that I, at least I hear from people. And I think about blood sugar levels combined with, you know, the impacts of chronic stress affecting how perfectly responsive their adrenal glands are. So long story short, I don't want people's blood sugars dipping. So I do, I absolutely think that protein would be a good aspect of that. But I'm also interested in fiber, um, resistant starch as, a, as an additional means of helping blunt, you know, a sharp uprise and downtick in, in blood sugar. And I also think always about what I heard know to be called the second meal effect. Are you familiar with that? I don't think I am. I'll let you so, say more and maybe it'll click. And now let's give a little love to our sponsor. You know, we're here in Heart Health Month, February, and this is the Heart Series here at Dr. Geo Podcast. And I want to thank our sponsor, Calroy. Calroy produces two excellent dietary supplements. One is called Arteriosol HP, and the other one is Vasconox. And both do an excellent job in supporting cardiovascular health. Arteriosol HP helps with the production of the endothelial glycocalyx. You'll learn about that with Dr. Miles Spar in this series, where you need that particular lining in the endothelial cells to help your heart and your blood vessels and vascular system work well. Vasconox works in the proper production of nitric oxide to, again, help your vascular system and your heart stay nice and healthy. Arteriosol HP and Vasconox make the perfect combination for vascular support. Give your glycocalyx and nitric oxide production the attention they deserve. Heading over to the website, calroy.com backlash geo. That's calroy, C-A-L-R-O-Y.com backlash D-R-G-E-O. I'll see you there. <laughs> As I understand it, they've found what they call a second meal effect that happens from consumption of either legumes or whole grains, where not only does it help blunt a sharp blood sugar rise during that meal, it literally helps blunt the blood sugar rise of the following meal. Mm. And so a lot of times if I'm t talking to somebody about the protein portion of their dinner, if they're having sleep problems, I'm usually recommending beans mm. as Assuming I'm not going to, assuming they're maybe eating more of a plant-based dinner, I'm usually recommending specifically beans from this perspective of it. It seems to have this very sort of subtle settling effect on blood sugar levels as part of that equation also. Yeah. What, since dieting and nutrition science, I find it to be difficult, right? But 
I think there's still enough to give you some sort of guideline out there. And I have conversations with either very hardcore plant-based people, or sometimes it's carb people, or sometimes it's the other end, carnivores and so forth. Like, well, are we deciding to just ignore the science that exists, right? Because most scientific research, and again, I'm the first one to say, yeah, I understand nutritional science is difficult and how do you extrapolate, but we're doing this, we're doing this kind of scientific work for a reason. You can get decent information, if not really good information from these, from the research. It's clearly indicating that fiber, important component in a diet, less risk of colon cancer, right? So with my patients with prostate cancer and so forth, you know, I'm assuming that you want to help yourself from prostate cancer, but you don't want other cancers, right? Should I make that assumption? So, you know, the evidence is pretty clear in my mind that fiber, when you consume enough fiber, you have lower risk of colon cancer. Also, microbiome and microbiota is a thing. And when you're asking me, well, probiotic supplements, well, first of all, there's only so many supplements you can take. And number two, Let's feed the microbiome that's in your system. And the best way to do that is through fiber, right? I mean, it's, you could have kimchi and sauerkraut, decent, great. But fiber is the prebiotic that I believe is even more important. What are your thoughts on everything that I just said? Yeah, couldn't agree more. And these days, the way I think about it especially is not just amount of fiber or, you know, not trying to, trying to not eat a low fiber diet. You know, so not only are we trying to eat a higher amount total, we're trying to eat the widest variety possible. And some of the research I'm aware of shows that there's a particular unique benefit on the microbiome. The wider the variety, the diversity of the fiber sources there are in a week of your food. And it's because it leads to a wider diversity of, the, of microbiota in your gut. And that's, I mean, if there's anything that seems quite clear and straightforward in terms of what's the healthiest microbiome, microbiota you can have, it's one that's very diverse. And so the only way that you're going to encourage diversity in your microbiome is via diverse intake of the foods that feed them the prebiotic foods. Mm -hmm. And I'll say as a sort of like a sidebar, that's one of, you know, let's talk about the carnivore diet for a second, which to talk about that for a minute, I could see it in your face that you've been wanting to go right into, you know, it sounds like you've been having fights with people on Facebook with regards to the carnivore diet. So go ahead, well, man. take it. Go ahead. Let it all out. Let out the well, steam. Yeah. Now, I want to say I have uh, I have evolved over time in my what used to maybe be you could call them fights. And now hopefully they're mostly more intelligent discussions that are well-balanced and respectful. But, and I, the first thing I will say about the carnivore diet, because it's clearly a hot topic right now, is I don't know everything about it. I don't know. It is an unprecedented situation that we're in right now where we have people in modern times who are not forced to eat that way, who we can do legitimate objective testing on and see how they respond. And there are admittedly a fully acknowledging, even though I've said everything I've said about plant-based diets, I don't, I would never profess to say that I know everything about how a carnivore diet is going to impact somebody. So that's my general perspective. I'm open-minded. You want to eat that way? Cool. Let's test you and make sure it doesn't look like it's having a negative effect on you in any of the ways that we know that we can evaluate you. And if it's saving your life from something else, you know, like you have some severe disease and the only thing you've ever found that helps you is the carnivore diet. I'm going to do my best to help you stay healthy, you know, even if that's the reason. So, 
so that yeah, be- let's look let, before you go on to your next thing. Let's let me touch on this for a second, and please don't forget what you're about to say. But let sure. me just say this really quickly. Yeah, I am. First of all, there are people out there promoting diets, carnivore, ketogenic, who I find who to be intelligent, scientific. Yeah. I, so who am I? These guys. Not only somebody can sound smart and not be smart. These people, in my opinion, are actually smart. Yeah. Right. So some of the claims for carnivore, and again, carnivore is like not even vegetables. You eat literally meat products. And I hope I'm not an expert in it, but you're eating literally meat products all day, every day, little to no vegetables. That's my understanding. No fruit is my understanding. Yeah. Two things. One is my understanding is that it works very well for specifically autoimmune diseases. And when nothing else is working and you're trying to stay drug free, I'm willing to do anything. So if I have an autoimmune disease and a smart guy who I believe is smart telling me, look, carnivore is the way to go, I'm ready. I'm ready to do that. Right. Because I don't want some, maybe I don't want some of the drugs and pharmaceuticals and things and medical treatments for it. That's number one. Number two, ketogenic has been around for a while, paleolithic has been around for a while. Now carnivore is more or less new in my as best as I could tell. Then where are all the dead bodies if it's that bad? I would expect to, for there to be people dropping dead everywhere. Now, of course, we got to give it time and we'll see in the long run and blah, blah, blah. But I would think that would have a negative impact right away. So A, is it possible that for some people, let's say autoimmune, maybe there's something there and why aren't people dying like crazy? A lot of what you're saying is things I've observed as well. And I pay as close attention as I can to, to what I'm learning about that. Because I want to be, again, well-rounded in everything I understand about things. And that absolutely is has been my experience as well. The thing I hear most frequently about this helped me is autoimmune disease. And from that perspective, and one of the... So I don't ever deny... I'm not somebody out here is like, there's no way that could be good for you, or there's no way that could help people based on my prior biases. If somebody says it helped me, I'm going to acknowledge that and try to figure out why, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so from that perspective, I do consider a carnivore diet, despite some people literally trying to prove that it is the natural human diet, I will argue to the whatever comes home, cows or broccoli, <laughs> against that idea, unless you know, I see evidence to the contrary, but I do not argue against the efficacy of it with certain situations. And I consider it likely to do with the fact that it is an extreme elimination diet. It is one version of what you and I as naturopaths have heard all about and learned all about in our whatever training and careers about elimination diets. And sometimes in order to get better, you got to take away what's irritating the person. Right? Without the challenge then, right? So what we learned was elimination challenge. Yeah, diet, yes. There seems so to be no actually, challenge. So that's my second point. And it actually seg- ties into the fiber question is that if you do an elimination diet using a carnivore diet and you calm everything down, your body starts react, stops reacting to whatever is reacting, feels better, everything calms down. My next question is, has that person healed or has that person gotten de-inflamed, right? And the one way that you might be able to prove that somebody's healed is that they can then go back and consume what they were consuming before that was bothering them and it no longer bothers them. So a simple analogy I give to people is like, if I take an onion, I'm sorry, if I take a lemon and I cut it in half, and I rub it on your arm, it feels wet. If I cut your arm, and then I rub the lemon on there, it's going to burn, right? When before it didn't. If I keep rubbing the lemon on there, it's going to take longer to heal. Mm -hmm. If I take the lemon away, it's going to heal quicker. 
If it heals all the way and then I rub the lemon again, it's not going to burn. That's healed. All right. One of the things I hear about in the carnivore diet and a concern I have is that they become even less tolerant of plant foods over time. Like I hear, for, I read anecdotes, at least mm. of people like, all my symptoms are gone. But if I sprinkle some rosemary on my steak, I'm wrecked for the next day. Interesting. So to me, I'm like, okay, they're doing something that's helping them. No argument. Are they healing? I don't know. And that's when I think about the microbiome and there's no fiber in there. So I don't know how that, I know that there's some studies that are happening with the micro, with carnivore diet and the microbiome, but absolutely there's not a wide variety of fiber in there. And so I, that's one area that I'm concerned about is the impact on fiber. Or you know, I love what you just said with regards to, you know, where you become hypersensitive to the thing that you eliminate, you know. I don't necessarily, unless somebody has actually celiac, I don't re necessarily recommend a 100% gluten-free diet because then if they have gluten in some place that they don't know about, they'll pass out in the middle of like driving somewhere. Like yeah. they feel horrible. Yeah. So there's a hormetic effect, I think, to a little bit of the substance. Assuming, right? Uh, I think many of us assume that people are having non-celiac gluten sensitivities. And I do see that to be the case in some cases. Right. But to eliminate it completely, I don't recommend it for that yeah. same reason. And you could even argue that may be one of the reasons, many reasons for the benefit of plant foods is the toxins that are in there are in tiny amounts. They're not the rat that ate the hundred times higher amount. They're just the small yeah. amount that there is some research that suggests that is having a hormetic effect or like the, you know, the polyphenols, they're not like antioxidant they stimulate your body's antioxidant production as well right they're so these plant toxins that the some people are saying you have to completely remove from your diet it's like removing it's like stopping the training that they're mm -hmm. that you're designed to need in order to have a fully you know evolved and tuned up antioxidant system elimination system detox system etc you don't use it, you lose it. Just like when I see you and your videos on Instagram lift, lifting massive amounts of weight, I'm like, he's clearly using it and not losing it. You know? <laughs> All those barbell squats, right? <laughs> yeah. If, do you remember your thought before I interrupted you that I told well, you not to lose that thought? Because I want you to finish your thought if you didn't already. Yeah, no, it was just about the fiber part of so the ah, carnivore okay. diet and yeah. this, what I was mentioning initially about the diversity of fiber. And there's that's the one thing I don't see any logical way that a right. carnivore diet could right. to could promote microbiota diversity is the point. And, not, and neither do I. Look, there's a one liner that I have, and I think you'll appreciate the diet that gets you well doesn't always keep you well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's right. a perfect way to describe it. And yeah, I mean, that's, that. and again, it doesn't mean that I deny the possibility, but I'm like, that's what I know logically. So I need to be proven. I need you to prove to me in the long run. So this whole question you had about why aren't people dropping dead? Well, number one, it hasn't been that long. Yeah. Number two, human beings are unbelievably resilient yeah. and adaptive. Yeah. Especially if you do something that helps them from one angle, you know, then the body's going to be like, okay, I got this at least for a while. And I do find it fascinating that there, you know, there's very, we don't have any, we don't have any evidence in history of people that ate pure carnivore where we can, I mean, obviously there are periods of time where people did have to do that. And so we're clearly 
you know, I don't argue that we're not omnivorous, that we are able to consume a variety of foods. But some people take this idea that we are clearly adapted to be able to eat meat to suggest that it's a, it's a health food for us. And I don't know that until I test the individual person because it's that's to me, it's adapting to something is different than thriving on it. Right. Look, I think, and this will be the the conversation that we'll uh, probably end with. And my concern, so like you said, you know, vegan and all these terms are not great terms, right? Because those are exclusionary definitions, right? So it's what you're not eating. It doesn't say what you're eating. A lot of people become starchitarians and things like that. One of the concerns I have then with aging population, particularly some men with prostate cancer or ADT, is that they're not consuming enough protein, A. And I know you're going to say, well, you could get enough protein from a plant-based diet. I don't disagree, but particularly, so protein means, you know, a combination of amino acids that are linked together that creates a certain protein. There are certain amino acids that are required for muscle synthesis of so the creation of muscle. We need muscle, right? So if you put a gun in my head, as a geo, what's the number one factor in aging people? That's a complicated question, not an easy answer, but I would say, you know, sarcopenia, just the elimination of muscle, a decrease of muscle as you get older. A lot of bad things come from there, balance problems, metabolic problems, et cetera. You need branching amino acids, particularly lysine, I'm sorry, leucine to, for muscle synthesis. Manimal products are, you know, they have plenty of leucine. What would be the best plant-based approach to get enough high quality, particularly the nine essential amino acids into the diet with a decent amount of leucine. And this is what I recently learned, and you're gonna love this. Potato is actually a very decent protein source (laughs) with a lot of leucine in it. And I was like, no way, potato is bad. That's a white food. It's a starchy food, no. And and so that's what I learned recently. I'm like, wow, who would have thunk it? So this is not French fries for the listener. This is actually real (laughs) potato, like baked potato and things like that. So take it away, protein on a plant-based diet and potatoes. Yeah, so always, so here I go being nuanced again. Always the most important message first, if somebody is adopting a mostly or entirely plant-based diet for whatever reason, let's just say that's already been decided they're gonna do that. We have this concern that you just described. My number one, 1A and 1B recommendation is variety of food and absolutely make sure you get enough calories. And when you do those two things, you're assuring yourself of the likelihood of probably getting enough protein almost all the time with a wide enough variety of amino acids versus, well, I don't really like much in the plant-based diet, so I'm going to mostly eat rice and broccoli. Like that might not cut it, you know, even if they do eat enough calories. So, and you know, it's why, you know, what you said about potatoes, I actually, I don't know if you saw the same thing I saw, but it was a comparative analysis of the amino acid breakdown between potatoes and whey protein. And it was almost identical. I was also shocked. So if I have somebody who is sarcopenic or is at risk for sarcopenia, I'm going to start making a more specific set of recommendations. And and we're still trying to keep them plant-based for whatever reason. Then I'm going to start looking at more detail, something like that. Make sure you're eating potatoes regularly, even possibly use a organic protein powder just to make sure that type of thing. But I, I don't usually start there unless it's a concern. And then I also will say that my 
concern level automatically goes up over about the age of 65. So if that's if age-wise they're at a higher risk for sarcopenia or at a higher risk for you know needing more protein, there's research I'm sure you're aware of that like kind of like a lower protein diet seems to promote longevity up until about the age of 65, and then it looks like you need a little bit more. Like once they're over that age, I'm going to make more of an emphasis and beyond just get enough calories and start to focus with them on. Let's make sure you're eating enough of this. Let's make sure you're eating enough of that. And I'm also going to say, like, I might tell some people, maybe we should have you eat fish twice a week. Like, I'm not for or whatever, you know, like, I don't think that that, that even in pretty extreme cases is going to be have a negative effect. Or even whey protein. I There's good research behind whey protein showing that people retain muscle, particularly elderly people. Yeah. They've done a lot of research on it. I Even my prostate cancer patients who tend to be plant-based because of things that they read, again, I keep them on that path. But I do say, you know, some whey protein. And if they have some philosophical reason for not in dairy, I just have them take branching amino acids. I, they, I don't know, maybe as in, I just really have seen horrible things with men just you know, muscle wasting, yeah, sarcopenia. I mean, not muscle wasting from like advanced cancer. Yeah. And and that's a big part. Sometimes their testosterone level is too low, right? Because the testosterone yeah. is the other muscle synthesis yeah. hormone. All right, Dan Chong, Dr. Dan Chong, cardiologist, naturopath, well, naturopathic cardiologist, and a good friend and a, an amazing naturopath. Those that are watching on video, I know you think that Dan is only like 27 years old and right out of college because he looks so young. Just looking at Dan Chung, you're going to want to be on a plant-based diet because <laughs> this guy, he doesn't even have one gray hair. So I, I want go. whatever he's eating is what I want to do. <laughs> Dan, thanks for being on. Final thoughts and how can people get in touch with you? Thank you. I appreciate that. I got a couple gray hairs. When I get up close, I can see them Stop. on. Bro, listen. See, I hate people like you. When you get up close, <laughs> there's no need to get up close. Can you see my gray? Do you need to get close to see my gray hairs on I, my face? Come I on, man. I'm just going to say, part of me at least wants to be able to lift as much weight as, or half as much weight as you do. I don't care if I have a gray beard, but whatever. So yeah, I appreciate that. And a lot of it is my genes. My dad looked 20 years younger than he was supposed to his whole life. But anyways, yeah, my website is vital-human.com. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of work with people consulting wise these days. So like, great, not, you know, long distance telehealth consultations, always making sure they have, you know, contact with primary care or specialists as well. But, you know, trying to help people fill in the gaps, so to speak, in terms of what they don't hear from their primary care, their cardiologist that I think is going to help further benefit their cardiovascular health. So I do, a, that's probably about 90% of my work these days. I just have a little in-person practice still, but so that's a lot of what I'm doing. And my, you know, my final thought about this very complicated, ongoing, never ending topic, debate, whatever you want to call it, is, the, is what I already said, you know, kind of what I already said, like, you are your own research study, right? Mm. So we, the way I use research studies is, to get the most likely possibility to help the most highest amount of people. But it doesn't always guarantee it's going to be the same for each individual person. So make sure whoever you are out there that you're working with, if this is a concern of you, if cardiovascular disease is a concern of you, that you're working with somebody who knows how to follow and evaluate your 
progress so that whatever ch choices you make, they're playing out the way we hope they are. And don't, you know, don't pigeonhole yourself into this diet has to work or that diet has to work or this drug has to work or I don't want to do any drugs. Like open mind, the bottom line, the, the number one goal is your health. And so do everything you can to support that and then to verify that it's working. And then that's really the bottom line approach that I take. So that's what I would advocate for. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for being on, Dan. Always this a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, man. We're signing off. This is a great conversation with the man himself, Dr. Daniel Chung, on what's the best diet, looking at it, you know, objectively for cardiovascular disease prevention. It, it, we had a great time. Thanks so much, Dan. This is Dr. Gio signing off. I'll talk to you next time. All the best. Much love. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. And it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.